In today's episode, we pick up where we left off last time, now with Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 44, the rest of the chapter. Jesus is challenged by the Sadducees regarding the concept of the resurrection, and then by one of the scribes on what the greatest commandment is. After Jesus rebuffs these challenges with his infinite wisdom, he then shames the ostentatious display of wealth by the wealthy with the sacrificial giving of a poor widow. He underscores the value of her humble offering, emphasizing that it surpasses the significance of those larger ones. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, November 17th, and you are listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. If you haven't been to their website in a while, let me encourage you to go. It's lhfmissions.org. And you can go there and learn all about their translating and publishing work. That's lhfmissions.org. Well, we're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727. Or if that's not your style, you can email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I'm always keeping an eye out for the inbox. You can also send me a Facebook message. And I'll try to get your question or your comment out on the air. But for now, let's welcome our guest, a returning contributor to the show, the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of faith in Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Good morning, Pastor Boisclair. Welcome back to the program. Good morning. It's such a delight to be with you, my brother, and, and with all your listeners. Oh, it's always great to have you on the show. And you know what? I'm glad you're here because we're going to be going through a lot of text. I don't think I realized when I was dividing this up so many months ago just how much I crammed into today's episode. But I think we can do it, and I think it'll be a great time. Would you start us together off in prayer, though? I'd be honored. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, God of light, life, and mercy, During this season of Thanksgiving, we thank you for everything that you have caused to be written in your four Gospels. The Gospel of your substitutionary death and resurrection is your power for salvation for all, received by the faithful. May we marvel at your wisdom and teaching that we may follow in your steps, witnessing your truth to a dying and pagan world that has no hope other than you and your Gospel. May your spirit guide us as we look at the words of your evangelist, Mark, and may your Holy Spirit guide us into all truth, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, brother, I say we just dive right into the teaching for today. If we look and open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12, We're going to find that we're just coming on the heels of Jesus's teaching when the Pharisees and some of the Herodians came up to him to try to trap him with the subject of taxes. So we have taxes already tackled by Jesus. And today, well, we turn to a rather interesting way. I think that they're trying to entrap Jesus uh, or at the very least, they're trying to, you know, get his opinion on it. So maybe they could dissuade others from following him, but that is the Sadducees and the resurrection. Uh, Is there anything you want to lay the groundwork for before we just read the text? Well, you know, it's interesting in in some of the commentators, of course, this is not, you know, not how the text must be interpreted or anything, but uh, they they kind of say there's a similarity in the uh, confrontations 
uh, to Jesus uh, during this, of course, would be Holy Week that this is occurring. Uh, Between the four uh, children that ask questions during the Passover Seder uh, service on on, uh, Passover, the wise child asks about the testimony, statutes, and judgments, uh, you know, so that might be the Pharisees asking and the Herodians asking about the taxes. And then there's the thoughtless child that asks, what does this service mean to you? And, and in this case, the ridiculous uh, uh, scenario that the Sadducees put forward. And then they have the simple child that, that is a good Lutheran that says, what does this mean or what is this? And that, of course, is be the question about uh, the uh, greatest commandment in the law. And then the uh, child unable to ask a question is the one that Jesus uh, assists by asking uh, about um, uh, who, who is the son of David or who is, who is the Messiah, the son of David. Well, then how does David call him Lord? So that's kind of an interesting way of looking at it because this is sort of Passover week. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a fascinating way to divide up the sections and kind of, I don't know, put a little meat on what's going on. Uh, I tell you what, why don't we go ahead and read this first section and, and see how that plays out. So I'll be reading from Mark chapter 12, starting with the 18th verse from the English Standard Version. And Sadducees came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offering for his offspring pardon me, for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had had her as a wife. Now, if I can pause right here at the climax before Jesus answers. Uh, So the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection, as they say in Sunday school. They were sad, you see. But uh, here they come. Here they come. Offer, uh, asking a question about the resurrection. But obviously, since they don't believe in it, they don't have good intentions. But take us through. What what exactly are they asking? and, And what is this law of Moses they're talking about? Yes. Uh, the Sadducees, of course, they were uh, a more exclusive uh, group or sect of Judaism. Uh, the Pharisees were more popular among the people. And so there were a lot more Pharisees than there were Sadducees. The Pharisees also were uh, noted among lay people. They were supposed to, um, you know, uh, as as good Jews, as good laymen, uh, they were to know the, the scriptures. And, and they, they accepted the entire scriptures, uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings, you know, which we know the 39 books of the Old Testament. The Sadducees, of course, they were they were elitists. Uh, they they were they kind of uh, liked to um, uh, be uh, among the the wealthy families of of the uh, Judeans. Uh, they were they were high priests or, pri- or chief priests and so on. But but they were uh, somewhat more conservative. Uh, they 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 stuck to the written word only, and of course, and then they also limited the uh, authority to the five books of Moses, the law, uh, the Pentateuch, uh, you know, uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy, 
and uh, they found nowhere where there would be any passage in this um, in the Pentateuch in the books of Moses uh, that referred to the resurrection. And and so uh, you know, and and, and what's rather interesting this this business about the resurrection and and also maybe their other beliefs were kind of like a way in which the Apostle Paul was able to kind of um, uh, you know cause sort of a disturbance uh, you know when he was being tried uh, in in at the end, latter part of the Book of Acts. So it's interesting because, you know, we talk about the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And, and today the Pharisees have such a bad name for for their strict adherence to the law. And, and, and of course, they deserve some of that. Right. And we have to caution ourselves against becoming that. But they at yep. least accepted the scriptures, whereas the Sadducees, I guess, in, in and you, you call them the more conservative group, which is definitely a way to discuss them in the context of of when they were because they were saying, well, you know, all this stuff is extra. I think nowadays we almost might describe them as the more liberal group, though, because they reject so much of the of the scriptures. But regardless of how you define them on those sort of types of scales, the Sadducees deny not only the resurrection of the dead, but the existence of angels and spirits. Um, I, I, and I'm just curious, and I've not looked this up, so I genuinely don't know. Um, are they correct that the first five books of the Bible, that the Pentateuch doesn't really mention those things? I, I, while I can't name any citations, I kind of feel like it's got to, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it talks about the angels. Uh, it, it talks about, of course, you know, they, they, um, uh, they rejected the idea that the uh, Pharisees believed and, and what, you know, mainstream Judaism believed that there was the oral tradition, oral tradition right. from Moses, uh, you know, not only what was written by Moses in the five books of the Pentateuch. Um, and uh, I think that uh, you, you certainly have uh, a tremendous activity of spirits and angels in, in uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, the, the, the thing is, they, 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 they denied, uh, they actually denied an afterlife. Uh, they, they they don't believe in the resurrection, and so they also do not believe in um, you know the uh, immortality of the soul is either. Hmm. I mean, that, and that's fascinating because you know you just sort of assume that everybody believes in a religion, believes in some sort of afterlife, kind of the point of religion from from a uh, from a purely uh, secular scientific point of view. It's to answer the question, you know, where did we come from? Where are we going? And so it's it's interesting to hear about the Sadducees. Yeah. So when they, when Acts twenty three eight, for instance, says the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all, it's talking about their you know explicit denial of the afterlife. So when they're coming up to Jesus with this whole, well, you know, we we have this situation and it's such a a contrived situation. I, I mean, I, I suppose it could technically happen, but they basically make up an absurd situation and try to get Jesus's opinion on it. Uh, let's, let's hear before, before we keep on going, let's just hear what Jesus has to say. And we'll, we'll add this to the conversation. So Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know, neither the scriptures nor the power of God for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? 
He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. I love how Jesus ends this whole section on, you know, you're just wrong. Go away. <laughs> he doesn't say go away, but, but he's, he's just like, no, you're wrong. Keep going. But, but it's interesting how he does. He points to the fact that they're wrong because they're essentially, if I can speculate a little bit, they're, they're, they're basing all of this on their own interpretations rather than the clear word of God. Cause he has to point them back to the word of God. Well, they're also being uh, rather, uh, uh, sarcastic are, or, oh, um, sure. you know, that they're, they're skeptics and they're sarcastic. Oh yeah. That, that was another thing they disagreed with the Pharisees on the Pharisees believed in, in, um, maybe God's fate, you know, and, and in, in some sense or that God's will is, and, and nothing happens apart from his will. And they, they kind of denied that, but, uh, they're, 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 they're really poking fun at the Pharisees and they're poking fun at, at, the at the word of God as well, by, by saying there, there is no, uh, you know, resurrection, you know, it, what they're doing it may be considered to, to be uh, the practice of, of midrash. Although I remember a professor of mine saying there's no uh, midrash in the new Testament or anywhere in the Bible, a midrash would be a story that you make up to try to illustrate how the law of God is applied and so in this particular case, it's saying, okay, you guys believe in uh, the resurrection. So uh, let's, let's uh, create a scenario. You know, we talk about the Leveret marriage law. You know, there, uh, you know in, in, in the case where you, you have a brother uh, who dies and uh, his, he has no children, uh, then his brother, in, in order to preserve the uh, bloodline, you might say, or the inheritance of, of his brother, he takes uh, the, the uh, widow and marries her. And then uh, their firstborn son, of course, is, is to be credited to, to that brother. And, and here you have the, them creating this scenario, or, or maybe even a scenario like that did happen, where there were seven brothers like this, and, and this poor gal uh, she uh, goes from one brother to the next, and and they don't have a have a uh, a child in any case, and and so and then she finally dies. So, uh, you know, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Right. I mean, it's, I, and I think the mocking, the sarcasm is incredibly clear. So even if this was a midrash, it's not done in a sincere way. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's basically as you've already said, making fun. I, it reminds me of those. Um, well, you know, like those questions about is is there if God is all powerful, is there a rock that he can make so heavy that he himself couldn't lift? You know, silly things like that. Uh, there's I, I don't I don't think this has much veracity, but I've always heard this quote of someone asked St. Augustine, what was God doing before uh, he founded the world? And and Augustine said something like, you know, oh, uh, making a special place for those who ask stupid questions. I, I don't think that's canon, but but the point is right. we have all of these instances where people try to own the Bible. Uh, and I mean that in sort of the sarcastic modern way. They try to they try to get one over. They try to ask gotcha questions of Jesus. Boy, Jesus got gotcha questions all the time. And And this is another one. They're really just just making fun of him. But at the same time, oh, go ahead, please. No, please, sir. Oh, yeah. I just wanted to say that, you know, this uh, kind of fits into fit into like the beginnings of the Church of England, where because Henry VIII uh, wanted to divorce his wife and marry Anne Boleyn. And, uh, you know, he there was the um, 
uh, there are the passages in uh, the other places in, in the Pentateuch where it says that a brother, you know, you shall not marry your brother's wife. And, uh, of course, uh, you had this Leverett Law, which was in Deuteronomy, that, that uh, said, well, you know, his, his brother didn't have a child, so he could have uh, married his brother's widow and had a child and all of that. Um, the, thing, the thing is, though, is that you're not married to someone who's dead. And so, as, as uh, uh, Dr. Vels in his commentary says, that, that those passages which say that you should not marry your brother's wife— uh, do not apply to in the le- in like in the Leverett situation, where where is it the idea to uh, preserve the dead or preserve the inheritance of of a family in in the, in the in the face of being childless, but but like in in this particular case, it's like uh, well uh, okay well you're talking about a life afterward, so uh, who's who's this uh, lady going to be a wife to? Right. And, and I, I like that Jesus's answer, which really is uh, what he's saying is you're asking the wrong questions or you, you're, you're so off base you can't even ask the right question. But they don't ask about angels at all. But when he answers, he says when they rise from the dead. Actually, they didn't ask about – well, they did – they talked about the resurrection. But, but I, I just – I like how he really kind of pulls in some of their other stuff for when they rise from the dead. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. I mean, it's like that last phrase, which I'm afraid has caused us a little consternation in history. But he's bringing up this fact that not you don't believe in angels or an afterlife, and yet there are not only angels, but people will act in the manner of angels. Now, let's get into that just a little bit because. Teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. (laughs) So a lot of people will quote that line from the, from the, uh, what is What is that movie called? The, uh, it's a wonderful uh, life. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. Yeah. They'll quote that as scripture. And, and there's a lot of misunderstandings, including this passage about what happens to people when they die. Well, Jesus is answering the question of whether we're going to be married, but it begs the question, well, then what will we be to each other? Yeah, and 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 it's interesting. They, you know, they they kind of t- in, with their knife, the Sadducees. They say when they rise, you know, how ridiculous is that? And then Jesus kind of turns the the knife too by saying they'll be like the angels. Well, oh yeah, you guys don't believe in those. Uh, and and but then you're saying ex- uh, something that's exactly right. That in, sort of in a uh, you know maybe a, a folk religion or folk Christianity where you believe that. Uh, someone who dies becomes an angel, and that's not uh, that isn't biblical. And um, he he just says you will be like uh, uh, we will be like the angels in in at least in uh, marital uh, consideration. Uh, and and of course um, uh, in 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 that in that case we we know from scripture that there is a uh, you know there is the blessed angels which are the uh, the good angels and that there is a definite number of them and that uh, they're 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 not their ranks aren't uh, continued to grow through um, human beings human beings have a different status before god the angels are to assist those who are the heirs of salvation as we read in hebrews and so um you know i mean it it, it, it but but again jesus is kind of 
twisting the knife too in, uh, into their false beliefs. And, and Jesus says, he's saying, you know, you do not know the scriptures. So he's saying you're not interpreting the scriptures correctly. And we know that we can say and confess this uh, to the whole world. Unless you understand the proper distinction between law and gospel, you're not going to un- understand scripture. Well, absolutely. I mean, he doesn't deny that they have the scriptures, but he's sort of denying the fact that they're really not reading them right. Have you not read in the book of Moses about how God spoke to him saying, and God mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus's final kind of mic drop moment here is him saying, how can God be the God of someone who's dead if they don't continue in eternal life? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And then you are quite wrong, which which I like. But yeah, so he lets them know in no uncertain terms that they're wrong, but they're wrong because of their misapplication of Scripture, because they are not reading the the words of God. Exactly. This is so comforting. Um, And and. And we we have here, uh, you know, obviously Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, were their souls were uh, separated from their bodies in physical death, but Jesus is saying they are still alive. So uh, much in the same way as Jesus said to the uh, the robber on the cross, we say the thief on the cross, today you shall be with me in paradise. We do believe in the immortality of the soul, immortality by the power of God and Christ and so on, not, not in and of itself, but uh, that uh, those who uh, die in Jesus, uh, their body is asleep and, and, and laid into the and to the bosom of the earth, but their souls are continue to be alive uh, with the Lord, which is far better, the Apostle Paul says. And I feel like he silences them pretty good because our next section has a different group of people coming up, or actually specifically one person. I'm going to go ahead and continue. Verse 28, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus, Which commandment is the most important of all? Now, before we get what Jesus says, when he comes up and he asks them which commandment is the most important of all, it doesn't sound like he's coming from a position of trying to entrap Jesus or even a position of mockery like the Sadducees, because it seems here that he hears them arguing and then is impressed with the way Jesus answers. Uh, Am I reading that right? I think you are. And and that's that is a very good question that that's, uh, you know, and as as Jesus's answer helps all us pastors uh, when we're catechizing our young people uh, uh, and, 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 and understanding the Ten Commandments. And, and uh, so this is this is an excellent, excellent question. And then, uh, of course, we, we uh, see further how, how it is. Uh, but but much in the same way as is, is, is among God's people, uh, we're to, we're to uh, rejoice in, in how he has cared for us, called us out of the world uh, as the ecclesia, the church, and, and how we, we delight to know what his will is for us. And, of course, the law of God presents God's will. Well, let's hear what Jesus has to say. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, 
You are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. I think this is a beautiful little passage here because, <laughs> first of all, I'm a little amused because Jesus answers in this amazing way. And then the, and then the scribe goes, yeah, you know what, Jesus, I think you're right. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't take it as an insult, right? He just, he sees that, yeah, the, the, this guy's he's starting to get it. He's starting to get it. Well, and, and in a sense, he's echoing Jesus, who says, uh, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God and not burnt offerings. I mean, to, to the uh, Pharisees, of course, who emphasize, you know, you're not supposed to do any, uh, you're not supposed to rub grain on the Sabbath in order to get something to eat. Or you know, uh, uh, although Jesus says, well, you pull out a, a donkey that falls into a well or something like that, or, <laughs> you know, I mean, but learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And, and I think that's, uh, that's, that's rather interesting. Maybe, maybe the, this particular scribe has been, uh, you know, following Jesus and listening listening to him a little bit more. I mean, it sounds like it because, you know, he first goes up in a very um, understanding way to Jesus. He's very open to Jesus's answer and he reflects back exactly what Jesus has said, but actually kind of expands upon it, but it's based on what Jesus has taught. But when Jesus begins his answer, and we just have a few minutes to start this before our break, he quotes the Shema. Uh, tell, tell the folks about the Shema and, and why that's such an important uh, confession or statement. That's in uh, Deuteronomy, uh, in, in Hebrew, Shema Yisrael, uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Uh, that, that's, that is a creed. Uh, you know, of course, it's, it's the Word of God as well, but it is, it is the, uh, you know, basic bedrock foundation of our faith in, in one God and, and, and only one. And, and it sort of elaborated on uh, throughout the scriptures, especially in, in uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 40 and, and following, where, where uh, God witnesses to his people, I don't know of any other God. I'm, I'm, I'm the only God there is, and, and, and there is no other. And, and um, the, the beauty of it is to show that it, our relationship to, should, with him is a relationship of love, and he is to be uh, at the center of our life and, and, and the first, in first place, and, and, and in every way we are to follow him as his faithful people. Yeah, and that, and that statement, you know, as you talked about sort of the base lowest common denominator of our confession, which is that we believe in one God. You know, it says the word Lord. Mark is saying it here in Greek, or I should say recording Jesus's words here in Greek. Um, I, I think Jesus might have made deference to the name Yahweh. That is by not saying it, by saying Adonai instead. But in the Hebrew from Deuteronomy 6, 4, it would have been even a little bit more clearer. It would have said, Hero Israel, Yahweh is our God and Yahweh is one. And of course, you shall love the Lord your God with, you know, your, you should love Yahweh your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The reason why I like to emphasize that is only because, you know, God has a name. It's not sort of a generic God or Lord or Allah, which is just Arabic for God. We have a personal God who then, of course, came to us in Jesus, who also has a name. You know, our God is not distant, but he's among us. 
And this is why we love him. But we're going to talk more about that uh, when we come back. So, folks, don't go anywhere. When we get back, uh, my guest and I will keep on going through Mark chapter 12. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of Faith and Bethesda Lutheran Churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. And we're talking about the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter 12. We're finishing up 12 today. Before we head back into our text, I just want to remind you once again that if you have feedback, questions, or comments, just reach out. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. Find me on Facebook. You can call into the studio too, 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or your comment out on the air. Well, Pastor Boisclair, before the break, you know, we just really just tiptoed into this uh, discussion with the scribe over what is the great commandment and uh, just repeating what God had said, what Jesus had said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and and strength. And the second is like this, love your neighbor as yourself. So I love how, and this isn't in the context of a a gotcha question, but still Jesus answers in a way that you don't expect. They come up and they say, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment are these two. (laughs) I just, you know, God just never fits into our, our understanding of things, but really they do sum up all the commandments. And we call these the two tables of the law when we teach our confirmands, right? The the first yeah. three commandments are essentially love toward God, and the rest of them are love towards neighbor, just as Jesus says. Yeah, and and um, it's rather interesting that in the New Testament, uh, our Lord in in um, in basically quoting, um, and and of course he he's God himself. Uh, he he adds the word um, your all your um, mind. Is is different because in the in the Hebrew, of course, it says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And so there is this. Uh, I believe it's the word dianoia, which is which uh, you know it kind of maybe appeals to the Greeks um, reading it because they are the eternal children of the mind. And so there, uh, he's mentioning uh, the understanding, or and, and you know the scribe even even describes that as well. So it's probably a part of the teaching of God's uh, Old Testament people uh, as well. And uh, another another point is as we were talking about the name Yahweh. 
and and how it goes into the New Testament, uh, it, it's usually the word Kyrios or Lord, and so. Right. Um, uh, that that's really why when our when Jesus is called Lord, he's actually being uh, ascribed uh, the um, the name Yahweh, and and uh, and he is the you know the Lord, and and the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and so on. But he's also God. Even if they don't know that's what they're doing, because <laughs> sometimes they'll use the Lord's name in a in a mocking way or in just a, a formal way, you know, because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they'll, they'll go call him rabbi, but I guess they don't call him Lord, but you get what I'm saying, though. They, people will butter up to Jesus and oftentimes confess the truth, even though they don't know that they're confessing it. Exactly. And then, you know, like you have in, in Mark's gospel, as, as he presents the Lord's answer to uh, Caiaphas's question, uh, he says, I place you under oath. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us if you be the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, I am. <laughs> and and sure. so there you there you have have, uh, you know, the, the Gospels are, are, are not uh, shy in declaring the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, and I want to talk another about another thing too, and that is we do have a couple of um, different versions. Well, let's say it, it's either different versions of this event, or this happened another time around the same time, because when we look at this same scenario in the other synoptics, in both cases they make it explicit that this question is being asked to put Jesus to the test. I think there's a lot of ways we could reconcile this and we wouldn't have to do that many uh, uh, backflips because, you know, the scribe could be asking earnestly and yet still a Pharisee or someone else could be hoping this question would somehow condemn him. But we do see that elsewhere. So I think it's worth mentioning that in other gospels, it's really about putting Jesus to the test. But Mark here really does seem to make it seem like this guy is uh, is honestly, well, Jesus tells him himself, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Yeah, and and um, uh, so so I guess the, the, where he would probably uh, the kingdom of God is right standing right in front of him in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, and and so obviously uh, he would he by the grace of God's Holy Spirit would uh, be entering the kingdom of God by receiving Jesus in faith. Um, but uh, you know, it it I think as as the commentators say, it's more about um, you know instead of sacrifice, a relationship with God. Uh, and, and of course, it's the saving relationship through Christ. Well, I love that double entendre that you just pointed out. I didn't see it before. Yeah, but when Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of God, I've taken that to mean, and I still think it's correct, that he's saying that, you know, what, you're, what you believe, what you're, what you're confessing, which is essentially what I just said, is correct. You're close to the kingdom of God. But in a very real way, as you point out, he's literally not far from the kingdom of God because it's come in Jesus. He's right there. It's right in front of you. And, and so many people don't see him. And yet this guy, though he doesn't look like he's ready to confess Jesus to be the Christ, is still willing to say, yeah, teacher, you're right. You're right about these things. And it's really encouraging um, because um, 
like per, a person like Nicodemus uh, w- would say, you know, nobody can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And, 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 and you must have had a, a many, uh, maybe Sadducees, Pharisees, uh, scribes, priests, uh, elders, and so on, that recognized the the truth of it. And and, and a lot of and that, of course, is is in line with uh, what is believed to be the uh, sin against the Holy Spirit. Is that these some of these folks knew that and were convicted that this is the Messiah, the Son of God, and they deliberately uh, opposed him because they were afraid he was going to encroach on their power or their influence. Yeah, that's a question that I've been asking most of the guests as we come through, and that is, you know, the people who are resisting the Christ, um, surely some of them just thought they were doing their good duty to prevent false prophets and con men from, you know, trapping the people. Uh, but, and, but surely some of them must have known because of the signs that he was the Christ and yet in their wickedness simply wanted to oppose him regardless. You know, it's not that they had faith in Christ. They had a demon's faith, right? They believed that exactly that Jesus was who he says he was, but they just didn't like it. I, I, again, I don't know that we can prove that out from Scripture, but it's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, and, and it's rather interesting in the Psalms, uh, God addresses people like that. You say, he says, you think that I'm altogether like you, that I'm not going to hold, uh, hold take you to task for doing this type of thing. Uh, but but that is that is not true for God, because there is going to be a day of re- reckoning, a day of judgment in which they will answer for what they've done. Mark ends then with uh, the words, and Luke ends in the same way, this whole section, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so far, that's true, because the next time um, we see Jesus teaching, he's the one asking the questions. Let's move into verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribe say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Uh, What is Jesus talking about? Um, he, of course, uh, mentions the scribes, and, and, and usually you think of a scribe as somebody who is sort of a, a stenographer or somebody taking down a, a speech or something. But, but a scribe is a Bible scholar, as, as uh, in, in some translations they translate it. Uh, and, and so they, in, in, uh, in their studies of Scripture, they consider Psalm 110 uh, to be a messianic psalm. And it begins with, uh, you know, it's a psalm of David. So David is speaking, uh, you know, the Lord uh, Yahweh said, you know, in other words, to my Lord, my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, uh, I put your enemies under your feet. And and so, um, you know, in in that particular case, uh, you know, they they considered it to be about the Messiah. And and so... um, you know how you know in, in other words how can you say he's the son of david because i think under another circumstance uh, you know he asked about this passage of scripture uh well you know who is the messiah and they answer the son of david and then he says well how how come david calls him lord if he's his son and and this this is kind of jesus is really kind of pointing to his his dual nature his uh, that he is god and he is man at the same time 
And I also think in this whole thing, something that is maybe a little missed if you go too quickly over it is in verse 36, when Jesus is quoting the scripture, he says, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared. So we even have here Jesus teaching that David certainly wrote the Psalms, but he was inspired to. So we have Jesus talking about the scriptures being breathed out by God right here, Jesus himself. And so I just think that's a, another little note. And I don't know if that was something that was in dispute among the people, certainly among the Sadducees, right? Because they, as we just discussed before, they wouldn't have held the Psalms to be the word of God. Exactly. And they did not uh, accept uh, what was called tradition. Um, and, and so, um, you know, but, but, but maybe we could commend the Sadducees that they, they of course, uh, delighted in what was written uh, of God's word. But, but definitely, this is, this, is a, this is certainly a teaching. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a little uh, uh, treatise on, on the last words of David, and, and which uh, discusses this particular, uh, well, actually, uh, you know, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, and, and some of the things that he had written, and as being from the Holy Spirit. Mm. Well, you know, and the scribes here too, I, I, you can't help but think that, you know, he's, they're not coming up to Jesus in this particular instance. He's just sort of quoting the scribes in a general way, but then he takes the scribes to task in this next little section, starting with verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Now, he's going to move into the widow, but before we even get into that, I got to tell you, this is a convicting text, I think, for a lot of new pastors, maybe some old pastors too. But, you know, when I was a circuit visitor, I had the opportunity to serve all kinds of great men, but at the same time, I, I saw a lot in churches where people, you know, would have conflicts with their pastors. And sometimes that conflict was just from the fact of, well, you know what? This is a new guy. He's still struggling with this, this heavy mantle that's been put upon him. You know, you tell a guy for four years, he's going to be speaking in the name of God. Sometimes they start to uh, take that to their head. And I think that's what the scribes were doing in this case, right? They, they, people were eager to please the scribes, but also out of respect for what they did, they would honor them. They would make sure they were greeted in the marketplace. They would sit them at the places of honor. And over time, they got intoxicated with these things rather than the word of God and their job. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's always a way in which uh, persons who are, um, you know, called uh, to, uh, you know, teach the Word of God and, and to, in, in a sense, uh, the mini- called into the office of the ministry are, are tempted by Satan. Luther said that, uh, uh, that there's the world, the flesh, and the devil, uh, that uh, the, uh, uh, the devil is the one who uh, makes it a point to attack those who are uh, in positions of leadership in the church. And, and those who hold the office of the ministry, uh, you know, whereas the, you know, the flesh, of course, is what uh, is used against younger people or young people and the world for the older people. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a concern that has been around, I guess, since forever. But Jesus is very clear that, yeah, you need to be aware of these guys. 
Uh, but besides the obvious, I mean, why beware of them? Be- just because they're more interested in their own opinions and their own pomp and circumstance, walking around in a cloud of their own eminence rather than proclaiming the word of God? I mean, you know, we, we hear about beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, but here we have beware of the scribes. Yeah, if you look at, you know, I think one of the most the, the most pungent uh, passages of Scripture is um, uh, Matthew chapter 23, I believe, where, where, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You know, at first, in, in, at the beginning of that chapter, uh, Jesus says, uh, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Uh, you know, they have, they have that authority. They, they, they speak the Word of God. They're to interpret the Word of God. And, uh, you know, everything they tell you to do, do them, but don't take their works as your example. And, um, you know, in, the, in, that, in that particular case, um, we might, you know, it's interesting that Jesus is different from them because they, they of course, would, uh, you know, say that this is the interpreted this way, the fathers believed this way, and, and you know, we're a little more uh, kind of a little bit less uh, for, uh, in, in fortitude preaching the word, you know, as uh, you know, it, it, that in the manner in which Christ, the, the boldness that Christ had in his uh, teaching. Yeah, if you're mostly concerned about preserving the nice greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and getting invited to those feasts, you're not going to be very, uh, I guess, <laughs> very studious about convicting people in their sins, even though that's sometimes your job. Well, let's move on. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, we can yeah, go ahead and move on to the next part because I don't want to miss it as we quickly run out of time. And that is the widow's might or the widow's offering. Uh, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. So it appears here, uh, this is the end of the text and the end of our uh, chapter too, but it appears here that Jesus knows a little bit of information that we don't, and that is not only is she putting in a small amount, but She's put in everything. I mean, she has nothing left to put her hope, faith, and trust in besides God. Yeah, and, it, it, and the, the irony of it is the temple was what we would consider to be a bank uh, in the first century. Uh, that would be where uh, the, the wealthy could say that they are giving to God when they're just simply putting their money at, you know, at interest and putting it into uh, the, the temple. And in, in here you have this 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 poor, uh, wonderful lady who puts in all the money she has to live on, uh, and and uh, she's probably going to go hungry and, and starve that evening, uh, while uh, she's, in a sense, it's kind of supporting the scribe that likes to be uh, walking around in long robes and, and devouring widows' houses. Mm-hmm. So you have sort of an irony here if you connect the two passages together. I mean, a great irony, you know, sometimes we actually have these discussions even today in our church, um, you know, just the way our church is set up. We want to provide for our pastors, um, but, you know, I think it's commonly said the pastor 
shouldn't be the richest person in in the congregation, but then again, he probably shouldn't be the poorest either. Um, you know, I don't know how much that connects, but there is always sort of a guilt when, um, you know, you see people faithfully contributing to ministry and perhaps you end up doing a little better than them. And, that, and I think that's, that's a struggle, but these people, you get the idea, they have no struggle with this. The scribes are happily taking all the, the last I mean, it really makes them sound pretty vicious, though. They're happily taking the last pennies of the widows just so they can go around and be honored at feasts and walk around in fancy robes. Uh, but I, I'm telling you, as convicting as it is, I do think it's a good reminder for us today. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, we have to remember why she did this. Uh, she uh, loved the Lord with all her heart, her soul, and her mind, and, and she, uh, you know, by the grace of God, and and uh, the the fruit of that faith that she had in her God was that she would deprive herself, and and she would give to uh, to his temple, and to his ministry. Now, just to answer critics, uh, and also maybe those who get the wrong idea, Jesus is not saying, however, that everybody should give everything they have to the church. <laughs> That's not a teaching that I think would be suitable to come out of this. No, and and you know you have the account of the rich young man uh, who um, you know said, "Good teacher, what must I do? What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life?" And then, and 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 you know, then Jesus has that conversation with him, and then he says, uh, "One thing you lack: go and sell everything you have, uh, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me." So, so in a sense, that was a specific uh, challenge that was given to that particular. A uh, person who was an aspiring disciple of Christ, but it's not a general uh, demand of all his disciples. Yeah, and I just think that's important because I, I've I've heard you know these prosperity preachers and everything else. They'll call on on passages just like the one you commented on. They'll call on passages like this. Um, but you know, when Jesus says she contributed um, everything out of her, what she needed to live on, right? Her whole means of substance. Um, it really links it to that greatest commandment, right? And to Jesus's explanation of what belongs to God, which we heard way back. So, so really she is act, this is an act of worship for her. She's not trying to buy God's favor or anything else. She's just genuinely being faithful and trusting in, in God's provision because, you know, he, he will care for or all those who put their uh, their faith, trope, ho- faith, hope, and trust in him. You know, consider first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given to you. And that's what's on this lady's mind. That was my um, confirmation verse, uh, Matthew 633. Yeah, uh, uh. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And and in this particular case, you know, maybe she went home and, and maybe her neighbors had had a big uh, little extra food, and shared it with her or whatever. Uh, you know, again, that's that's you know, you don't want to have like a prosperity gospel going on going here that, boy, you can make a lot of money if you give to God here. If you give if you tithe, you, you'll make you may become rich or whatever. Uh, it, it, but it is it's just a, a beautiful a model for us to follow as we follow Christ in the mm-hmm. in this uh, faithful uh, faithful widow. Absolutely. Well, we've made it all the way to the end of the chapter. We've gotten through everything. We could have spent probably a, a whole a whole episode on each part. But is there anything really important that you want people to know 
as we come to the end of our show? Anything maybe we haven't covered or something you want to reiterate? Well, one of the things is, as the Apostle Paul says in in Romans uh, 13, where he talks about love as being the fulfillment of the law, and and it's kind of it it. uh, he writes in Romans 13, 8 through 10, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not uh, commit adultery and so on uh, are summed up in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, 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 that's such an important understanding uh, in, in our quest to properly distinguish law and gospel. And to realize, of course, that the Lord Jesus is uh, love itself, as, as God is love, and he is the one that loved us so much that he took away our sin and took away our death. And, and gives us the hope and confidence of everlasting life through faith. And that's, uh, that's so important for us to remember. It really is. Well, I hope you have a blessed Advent. It's coming up pretty soon, but I guess even before that is Thanksgiving. Do you guys have anything special planned for Thanksgiving at your congregation? Yes, uh, we have a Thanksgiving Eve uh, service, and and we can be just thankful that uh, the Lord is our God and that we have such a marvelous God that cares for us and, 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 and any, even that death itself is not evil when God brings us through it. Excellent. Wonderful. Yeah. Remember the reason for the season, right? We're going to give thanks to the Lord this Thanksgiving. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Boisclair. He's the pastor of faith and Bethesda Lutheran churches in Pine Lawn, Missouri. Once again, thanks for being on the show. I look forward to having you back. It's been a joy, dear brother, and God be with you and all the listeners. And dear friends, on Monday, we now turn the page into a brand new chapter of Mark, and it is going to be about Jesus returning at the end of time. The Reverend Peter Burfield, he's going to be our guest. Jesus delivers an urgent warning to his disciples about all the tumultuous events that are going to come before his return. Things like false messiahs and wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters and lots of persecution. He tells them this so that they can stay alert and steadfast in their faith despite whatever trials are ahead because, as he says, the Son of Man's return will be sudden and only the Father knows the hour. That's what we're going to talk about and a lot more on Monday. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.